should have done it. Uh, first of all, welcome. Um, thank you for being here this evening and thank you once again for supporting the Trust. Um, this is a new look venue for us tonight. I'm quite pleased we're in here because it's the only building that's got air conditioning, so uh, I think it's rather nice to be here. Um, I'm delighted to welcome our guest. Uh, not only is the Edison Institute of what I believe now to be the world's oldest motoring uh, magazine, uh, but he's also a member of BTF. So would you please welcome Steve Croft. Thanks a lot, Steve. It's a pleasure. I'm glad we're here. <laughs> We're still, uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for coming. We are still um, having a little experiment here, but I think in a minute it's going to be wonderful. Um, you're probably wondering about this ridiculous picture. It's a, it's a photograph of me, age six. <laughs> and I just put it there because uh, on the basis that you've got to start somewhere. And, uh, but um, just a little bit about myself. I was, I've lived in this country, thank you very much, for the last 35 years, I think it is. But I started off in Australia in a place called Broken Hill, which is a, a place where there's lots of dust and flies, a place where you wouldn't put a town but for the fact that the richest uh, silver, lead and zinc deposits were under the ground there during my childhood. Um, and it was particularly well known for dust. Um, this, uh, these, this was sent to me by a friend recently. They still have dust storms. In my childhood, we used to get, you would be sitting in school and it, the sky would go red and then it would go black and they would send you home and by the time you got home your mum would be packing pieces of newspaper under all the doors because there was going to be a dust storm. And it's still like that. Um, I, I remember a friend of my father's, uh, army bloke, coming to visit us and uh, he, we took him out to a place where, which is known, called the Mundy Mundy Plain, where they now, where they made the first and second Mad Max movies, about 25 miles from where I was born. So you'll remember the, what territory that was. And this bloke turned through 360 degrees, and he said, well, I've heard about bugger all, but I never thought I'd see it. <laughs> um, so, and the reason I got interested in motoring magazines, just to make this quick, is that I, that man used to send me motor, I was interested in cars, there were no good cars, there was no motor racing, there was no TV because it was too far from, at the time, where you could send a, a TV signal. So I saw nothing worthwhile except on paper and this bloke used to send us uh, motoring magazines. And I became addicted to motoring magazines, I would sit in school, and I would know when the next shipment was arriving on the train which used to come over the sand hills at about 25 miles an hour. And I would be standing on the pavement when the parcel had been unloaded from the, uh, from the train in order to get the next monthlies. And a lot, you know, auto car was in amongst them. And uh, that's why I was and am addicted to motoring magazines. They, I just know how they used to make me feel and I still and motivated by the fact that when our rag comes out on Wednesday, I'm hoping people feel like that. Um, this is some stuff. I just wanted to try and give you a clue about what, how my life's changed. Um, 
this is an opportunity to drive a short nose or a prototype D-type at Goodwood. This was the long nose a couple of years later. This is me hobnobbing with Sterling. Um, this is an event they had for me uh, just across the way, and it, largely because of my friend Derek Redfern over there, the, the man with the, with the white hair, who created an event. I, had be, I, wrote, I write a column in Autocar every week. It, it, uh, when I reached 20 years and 660,000 words, they decided to throw a party, and this is the party. And um, this is what happened. This is, I, was, uh, I was thinking, I thought early in the evening that I was just going to go out with a bunch of friends. And uh, I was told to wait in the hotel over the way. Out of the night came a cast driven by Sterling Moss with John Surtees wearing a chauffeur's cap. They held the door open for us. <laughs> we got in the car and we were delivered to this event. My old lady, as you can see, can't believe it. And, um, you know, that's kind of what my life's been like. It's, it's, it's why uh, I continue to do this, sort of rising 67. I think they're going to have to carry me out. Um, this is another um, uh, event. I, last year, we had a 300 grand's worth of Rolls Royce to, roll, to, to drive around in in, in, uh, in the summer. Uh, it was a very strange car to be seen in because you had to park it around the corner if you went to see your friends. <laughs> but, but it was a hell of an experience. Um, too big for anything. It's a car and a half long, and when you have something that's a car and a half long, it is just too big. Uh, I'm sorry to, to obliterate the screen, chaps, but I hope you... Um, I'm going to start with some actual interesting information in a minute and stop bragging. Um, that, however, is my... Um, last but one purchase, which uh, I got to know the blokes that that the uh, that make the aerial atom. The car was designed probably 20 years ago in Coventry University, where Simon Saunders, who owns the company, was a lecturer. And the designer, he and the the actual designer of the car, a guy called Nicky Smart, a student, decided to put this car into production. And there's a picture on the walls in Coventry University to this day um, of a wooden buck with a bloke sitting in it, and it's me. And I am the, forgive the language, but I am the token fat bastard that sat in this, <laughs> that sat in this car to make sure that it could fit people like me, and here am I proving it. <coughs> right, now, so what happened to me was that I got into newspapers, never believed I'd be able to, um, to get a job on a motoring magazine, but I did swing it in Australia. And pretty soon, I began to contribute stories to Car Magazine, the monthly, in uh, the UK. And I came over on holiday, and they offered me a job. And I had no, nothing but a motorbike to sell in Sydney. So I went back, sold it, came over here. And this is one of the early issues that I worked on. That hairy-looking thing on the top there is me. Um, the car. Was, isn't greatly valued, the TR7. Lots of people are nasty about it. It is, in, in many ways, a, a really fine car. And if you, if you want me to give you 20 minutes on it sometime, I will. <laughs> um, but you know that was the big, the big uh, uh, face-off between the TR7 and the Fiat X19 at the time. Um, this is where I landed after I worked at Car for 10 years, was the editor for about eight, through the 80s. Left. Uh, because you do, 
um, went freelance for a while. It, it's, a, it's a DOS's job freelancing. You wait for the phone to ring and people give you second-rate stories to write and you're far better off to be at the cold face, so I went back. Um, and uh, I landed here. This is a story that I wrote which sort of shows how we work. And it shows why, as I'll tell you later, the Lotus Elise is such an important car to me because I think I wrote every kind of story about, the, particularly the S1, the, the early version. This is a story we wrote some months before the car actually came out. Uh, and we knew there was going to be a mid-engined um, aluminium chassis uh, uh, car that was based on Rover bits, but we didn't know what it would be called or what it would be like, and this was our piece of speculation. And I don't think it was too bad, given, given that uh, we didn't know anything. Um, and, and so this is rather, rather abruptly, I'm going to start talking about people I met, which is, I think, the point. Um, and of course, this is Enzo Ferrari, who I met very early on in my car days. Um, he was a very old man when I met him. He died in, in uh, 1988. He died at the age of 88. And I think he died in 1990, I've forgotten now. But I met him four times. Once, when I was kind of dragged in there by my editor, who was much more important than me, and I kind of cringed in the background and was, he had a very, he had a long office, and he sat right at the end, and he always wore, wore those glasses. He very rarely smiled. That's a bit of an unusual view of him. Facing right up this end of the office, there was a, you probably heard about it, a, a, a lit photograph of Dino, his son, who died at 24 from muscular dystrophy. Enzo is believed to have thought that he somehow brought, there was something, you know, in his makeup that caused uh, Dino to die. It wasn't really true, but he was always affected by, by, by his son's death. At the time I met him, these times, there was... Uh, a bloke called Dr. Franco Gozzi, who was, Enzo never spoke, he understood English, but he would never speak it. And Gozzi was the guy that you had to go through to the kind of gatekeeper. And I think it was Gozzi who invented those two famous quotes that Enzo's always known for. You know, Mr. Ferrari, what's your favorite model Ferrari? And he'd always say the next one. And which is the, your, the greatest motor race? And he'd sort of say the one we haven't yet won. And, and they were both annoying because they were get-outs. I wanted him to tell us whether the Ferrari 250 LM was better than the Ferrari GTO, you know, the, the, the 250 GTO. He would never say that stuff. Anyway, I met him three times, once as, a, as the boy, but I was given a tie. I was going to wear it tonight, but I couldn't find it. <laughs> um, but it exists. The next time, I joined a group of American journalists, three American journalists from Road and Track, and they were ushered into his office, which is very temple-like, and they said nothing. So I had to kind of, kind of carry this conversation, which was pretty difficult, and we got into what's your favorite race and all that stuff, and they thought it was fab, but I'd heard it before. So we stumbled through that one. And then I think it was at the launch of the, the Ferrari Mondial, and in the afternoon we went to drive the Mondial on the Fiorano test track, which is across the road, I'm sure you know. Um, and. Uh, during the afternoon, we were suddenly, somebody came around and, and ushered us off into a corner and out came Enzo in the passenger seat of a Fiat Uno Turbo and he did these two or three stately laps with a bloke driving and in the back was, a, was the local priest sitting, you know, with a hat on 
And, he, and they did these two laps, and Enzo apparently had to be shown all sporty fits, and, and this was, he was being, and he, and he apparently at the end of it he said, this is okay, and they, and they buggered off. <laughs> and, and we went back to driving the Mondial. And, and, uh, and then an hour later, or half an hour later, this little figure, there had been a, there's a helicopter, or there was a helipad right next to the pits at Fiorano. And this little bloke walked down the, 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 towards the helicopter, and he, was, he, was, he had a bottle of red wine in his, and it was Gilles Villeneuve. And he, was, and he got in the helicopter, put the red wine on the, on the dashboard in a little holder, started up the egg beater, and flew away to Monaco, where he lived. And I always thought this idea of, you know, a crafty swig of red plonk on your way to, was, was it, well, not quite how we do it today, is it? Um, anyway, um, I, it was, I hate to say this, but I, the th the, sorry, the fourth meeting with Enzo was the most productive, and he was very old indeed, quite um, infirm. But the thing that we started talking about was how much he admired Margaret Thatcher. He loved strong people, and he'd read all this stuff about the Iron Lady, and he wanted to talk to me about Margaret Thatcher. I knew bugger all about Ma Ma Margaret Thatcher. But, but he, you know, he was just interested in the way, you know, how she was regarded at home and so on. And we, we must have had a 10-minute conversation about British politics, which, on which I was not expert. But it was interesting. And then we had a convivial goodbye, and that was the last I saw him. He died a couple of years later, I think. Um, here he is again, in the, covered in mud and, uh, and, you know, earning his reputation. I think probably driving a... Oh, God, I wouldn't hazard... Uh, Alfa Romeo, would it be? Not sure. I also met this man, who was another person from another time, in that he didn't speak English either. He was small and bow-legged, and, and not quite as imposing as the reputation says he is. And, and he, um, he... His... Best PR man was always Sterling Moss, who, as you will have read, says he was the greatest, and, and uh, um, Moss was very respectful. Um, but it seems to me that from what I know of uh, the, the, the races that they competed in together, Moss was as quick, uh, really. He was, just, he was just respectful and younger. But Fangio came to the UK a couple of times he was uh, contracted to Mercedes-Benz, I'm sure you know. He, he, he was the um, boss of Mercedes-Benz Argentina. But he also used to come over and drive some cars. And I can remember us going to Silverstone. I think it was in some... When the 190 2.3 came out, the Cosworth Mercedes. Remember the little one? And there were two drivers taking the likes of us around. One was Fangio and the other one was James Hunt. Fangio drove with this, with this kind of precision car never out of line, really fast. James Hunt attacked every corner with his, with a kind of, James Hunt's main uh, point in life was to try and scare us, <laughs> which, which in some cases he did, but it was, but Fangio's, Fangio just drove, drove with his precision. He knew the car, it was a little bit disappointing because although it was quick, the car was so neat that you, you didn't really feel you were on the limit, except that you knew damn well that if you were trying to keep up with him, you wouldn't have been able to do it. Um, but I still feel that Fangio's 
deeds speak for themselves clearly, but, but his best PR man was Sterling Moss. And he, in, a, in a way, he owes Sterling Moss quite a lot. Here he is um, collecting some silverware. Um, Colin Chapman I met in, in a very, in, in interesting circumstances. I was very much the boy at uh, Carr, and I went to Hethel to collect a Lotus X, the first Lotus XL. I think it must have been something like 81, 82. And I was determined to meet Chapman, and the PR man said, well, you know, you know he's, he's not going to care about you, is he? And, 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 uh, and he duly didn't. I, I managed to get... Uh, <coughs> I managed to get 10 minutes with the guy, and, and, and I tried to talk about the sort of ethos of Lotus. He could not have cared less. He didn't care, didn't care about hacks. The last hack that he spoke sensibly to, I think, was, was Mr. Bolster, you know, who, who wrote nice things about the Lotus 6 about 15 years earlier. Uh, and, uh, but the, the, the only time that Chapman came alive a little bit was when we started talking about microlight aeroplane engines. Where, I don't know if you remember, but right towards the end of his life, he became interested in boats and obviously f Formula One, but boats and microlight aeroplane engines. And we talked about this flat twin that he was keen on building. And uh, for, a, for a sentence or two, he, he, he came alive. But he was a, he was a, uh, all the things that people say about him, that he, that he, was interested in issues, he was interested in concepts, and as soon as the concept was proven and in action, he just wanted to move on. He certainly did not care about the 1982 Lotus XL, I can tell you that. Um, but um, anyway, it was interesting to meet him, and uh, I feel I know a little bit about him. This picture is, is, is a, a one that I just happened to find. Um, what makes it interesting is that it's displayed in the National Portrait Gallery, and it purports to show the, the movers and shakers of swinging London in the 60s. And right in the middle is Anthony Colin Bruce Chapton, Chaplin, and, uh, Chapman. And, uh, you know, with Nubar Golbenkian and Susan is, um, uh, York, is it? And, and uh, you know, various... Yeah, David Hockney, there he is. And it just, it just uh, puts him in context, I think. It, uh, it, was, it, was, it was one point when when the wider society of, of Britain acknowledged a car maker as, as being a, a, a sort of fashionable person. It's, um, it's on the website there. If, if you're interested in it and you want to see it further, just, just have a look on the National Portrait Gallery website. It's quite an interesting... It's a, it was a picture taken by um, himself, the royal photographer, Snowden. That's the fella, yeah. Um, Isagonis, interesting guy. This... This photograph is a, is a very interesting one. We still go to this test track just off the M3 called Chobham, where, which was used as a, as a proving ground for um, uh, military vehicles. The London launch of the 1959 Mini was at Chobham, and that, that uh, bridge was there for a long time. In fact, its, its successor we still use to get access to the test track. Um, Isagonis is about to allow the... The, you know, the gentleman from the Times and all the other hacks um, uh, of the day to take to the roads in the, in the first uh, crop of minis, and that's, that's him posing, looking about as happy as he's ever looked. Um, I met him because of a friend of mine, a neighbour called Steady Barker, recently deceased. Some of you will know him. 
he was a really good mate of Visigonus's, and, and he arranged for me to go up there. Uh, I've got it written down when it was. No, I haven't. But it must have been early 80s. And, and the thing, we, he lived in this house in Edgebaston where he'd lived with his mother until she died. So he lived all his life with his mother. And he, you know, he's, by that time he was quite infirm and he was in care. And the only thing he ate was steak and kidney pie. So we had to, we had to divert to Britain's greatest steak and kidney pie maker to pick up lunch to, to, to get on side with Isigonus. And we, and we duly arrived at lunchtime and heated this up and we sat in this, in this very dark and sort of slightly old school dining room and, and, and ate this very slowly with me listening to them talk about the old days. But outside were two fascinating cars. One was the gearless Mini that you'll know, the, the car that, that, the Mini with no gearbox except a, a hydraulic drive in effect. And I was able to drive that around the block while they were chatting. And the other one was the 9X, the Mini that was actually shorter than a Mini with a, it was Isigonis's proposal for the uh, replacement for the Mini. And both of those cars still exist. And I had a go in both of them. And, and it, I'm sure if I rang up the museum proprietors now and said, what's the chances of a quick flip up the road in the 9X? They would tell me to, I'm tempted to say Foxtrot Oscar. Um, uh, but, you know, he, he, he was a remarkable guy, but he, I, always rem I knew Alex Moulton very well, even much better than, than I knew Isigonis. And, and uh, Alex, I remember Alex Moulton saying, to, we discussed why on earth it was that such a bizarre car could be built in a, in a place like uh, BMC that had produced so many straight-laced cars. And I remember Alex Moulton saying to me, we just won the war, we could do anything. And it was about... He felt that whereas the, the management of car companies had been, you know, family-based and authoritarian and old-school tie and all the rest of it, the war had shaken these things up and, and made... and it got rid of a lot of the old certainties, and that was the, that was the atmosphere that produced the Mini. I'll I, I never forget the quote, uh, um, we'd just won the war, we could do anything. And if you think about it, they must have been planning this car not too long after everybody arrived back from the war. Uh, Shuey. Shuey, sad, so sad what's happened to him. I met him uh, twice. Once um, at Hereth during a practice session, for a Ferrari practice session, the way things work with people like that, or did work at the time, was that you made a request for the interview and it, and it took so long for you to get to the top of the pile that by the time you got the phone call, you'd almost forgotten that you'd made it. And I just got a phone call one day saying, if you can be at Hereth in two and a half days' time, Michael will have three quarters of an hour to spend with you during lunchtime. And of course, we had a magazine. I was involved in the launch of one of our magazines called F1 Racing, still exists, still out there on the bookshelves. And, uh, and I was desperate to talk to him. I was quite friendly with Ross Braun, who'd always told me that Shuey was a great guy, really great guy. He's, you know, mis widely misunderstood. So I arrived, I always arrived places early, did tonight. And, uh, and I, I was there to sort of hours before I was supposed to, to meet Michael at lunchtime. And I, I didn't really know what to do. And there were a clump of people standing around the, 
the Ferrari caravan, all with their backs to me. And I was looking for, not Shuey, but his manager. And I approached them. It was Reiner, someone or other. I've forgotten his other name, Smiggins. And I, I, I uh, walked up to this group and said, one of you gentlemen, Reiner, so-and-so. And I was ignored by the whole lot, except for one bloke who was Michael Schumacher, who turned around, smiled, and said, I'm sorry, he's not due for another hour and a half, but if you wait here, I'm sure he'll see you. And I said, well, you know, I introduced myself. I said, I'm supposed to be your lunchtime interview, Michael. And he shook me by the hand, said, pleased to meet you, and it'll be nice to talk to you. And, he, and then he went off and drove the car. And I watched from the pit wall as the car sort of came and went in and out of the bay. And every time he drove out of the, you know, I was kind of riveted because it was like meeting, you know, one, one half a rung down from God, really. And, and uh, every time he drove out, he'd raise a finger, just, you know, hello. And, and then the, the interview came, and I was, he, he just walked in. It was, ex, was extremely nice, like anybody. Really nice bloke. Perfect English. We started talking about this facility that he was always said to have, where he could drive a car at top speed and still have a compartment in his head for noticing happenings on the track, watching the TVs, planning a strategy, and also his other facility where they would ring him up on the, on the radio and say, listen, Michael, we need five laps at, at uh, you know, 21.8, and he'd just deliver them. You remember how magnificent he was at this stuff. And we started talking about this, and then suddenly somebody from the crew appeared and took him away and said, look, Michael, we need, sorry about this, but we need you to come and t talk about a bit of telemetry. He disappeared for 20 minutes, and back he came, and he, and he continued to answer the question at the point that he'd left. And he, he, he didn't need me to say, we were talking about such and such. He said, now, we were talking blah, blah, blah. And, and on he went. And, the, and the, the interview lasted for 45 minutes, not 44 or 46. He shook me by the hand, and off he went. And I saw him at Spa 10 years later, just in a group. And he said, and, and I was being, like a few of us, I was being introduced and he said to me, he looked me in the eye and he said, we've met before. And I, I really rate the guy. And, uh, you know, perhaps he was, um, you know, in race's terms, he was, he was over, <laughs> overzealous or something. But as a person, he was a remarkable guy, remarkable guy. And I, I'll never forget him. Uh, sorry, uh, there he is again, just such a lovely bloke. And if you ever saw him walking around, he was an absolute epitome of, of, of sort of physical beauty. He was so, so coordinated, so fit, so tanned, so, you know, perfect skin. He was just a, what's happened to him is, is, is horrible to, to think about. This is Ratan Tata, another one of my heroes. Um, I met him at the Geneva show in, Christ, 2006, I think, 2007 might be. He was already known as the bloke that was likely to make an offer for Jaguar. In fact, I'd been one of the people that was interviewed by Indian financial press to get an opinion about whether, you know, whether this was going to fly, and it seemed good to me. There was a lot, you, you'll remember, that the notion of, the, of an Indian company taking over a, a fine old British um, you know, entity like Jaguar and Land Rover was, was regarded as, as pretty shocking. But Ratan Tata, I already knew a bit because he said to me, as he said to me, I'm at my 11th Geneva show this year 
And for the last 10, nobody's wanted to know me. And the reason I come here is because the Geneva Show principles, the people who organize it, meet us as equals with everybody else. They think we're, we're BMW or anyone else. They, they give us the same house room. They put us in a nice place. That's why I come back. And uh, obviously, he went through. Uh, this is him with the, with the Tata Nano, the car that is a, a sort of praiseworthy failure. Um, it's not entirely a failure because it is selling in countries other, fairly well in countries other than India. But um, it isn't doing the business that he thought it would. But um, he's a remarkable guy. He's, he's one of these people who has a, an extraordinary aura in that um, he doesn't, he, he, he's, you're probably aware he's Parsi, he doesn't boast, he doesn't, he doesn't uh, order people around. He's, I can remember in the very first press conference after the Geneva show launch date, I was the bloke that asked the very first question and I said to him, there are some pretty difficult people in the, you know, working in the companies where you're going to be, where, where you're going to try and assert your authority. How are you going to do it? And he said to me, we, number one, we want to keep the talented people in place. We want the management to, to survive. We have a particular culture in our companies which we hope people will understand and and go forward with it. And our, our firm intention is to allow people to deploy their talents to the full. And I think, you, you know, you, a lot of you will know as well as I do that that a big problem with the with the the British car industry up to that time and certainly in times past is that there were many talented people who were not allowed to deploy their their skills. And what uh, um, Ratan Tata forecast in his quiet way happened. JLR succeeds has succeeded on the talents of people who are already there. Sure, they've done lots of hiring, but but. The best people have been promoted, and they're the ones that are the, now the decision makers, I believe. And, and uh, you know, I think, I think it's remarkable what he's done. You'll, you'll probably remember that there was a point where I think he acquired the company. A year later, we were into the recession. He tried to raise money from the British government, who made life very hard for him. He decided not to take the money, but to raise it another way. And I think he's had the last laugh because I believe I saw a valuation on JLR recently which, which values it at something like 30 times the $2.3 billion that, that, that were originally paid for it. And he, if he's feeling rich, he damn well deserves it. Um, here he is again. This is him photographed with Nub 120, the famous... Uh, um, uh, um, XK120, in which I managed to do the Mila Milia one time, driving with a bloke called Gavin Green. Luckiest, uh, luckiest thing that could have happened to me. Gavin Green is, it was a superb car by magnificent XK120. Those of you who know the car will know that they're, they oversteer, they haven't got very good brakes or steering. This car has got fantastic brakes, fantastic steering, goes like a rocket, and Gavin Green is a brilliant driver, so I was safe and, and we were happy. But this is uh, Rattan. There was a moment uh, as we were walking away from the press conference. He hadn't yet bought the company. I remember saying to him, are you going to build a Jaguar, a sports car? And he said, it would be improper of me to answer that question. 
but I hope very soon to be in a position to do so because I feel strongly about it. <laughs> and I think, I think that, is, that was the kind of tick against the F-type. Ulrich Betts. Ulrich Betts may never get his uh, just desserts. He's the guy that has rescued Aston Martin. Aston Martin used to make cars. I'm sure some, lots of you know the history of the company better than I do. <coughs> Excuse me. But it, there were times when 150 cars in a year was a lot. He got the production up to 7,000 or something. Admittedly, they'd been making the DB7, which was quite a successful car as well, certainly the most successful Aston up to then. But Betts arrived in the year 2000. And he, were, he, were, he got quite a hard time from the press because he'd come from Daewoo, which was a funny place to come from. Um, he got into some bother with the Fleet Street reptiles by using the word wankwish a few many, a few many times. <laughs> and the PR man, a guy called Harry Carlton, rang me up and said, look, can you just do something that's at least fair to this bloke? So I went driving with him in a DB7, and he'd been, he'd been told how to behave. You know, he'd been told to be on his best behavior and not say wankwish and all that. And, um, and we were driving around, and he was saying, oh, yes, the DB7, quite a good car. You know, we, he drives like a fiend, so you're always hanging on. But, um, but we got, you know, a quarter of an hour down the road, he, was, he just couldn't resist it. He, just, he was a typical German manager. He, he, you know, he, he started pointing at the door seals and saying, look at these door seals. And he, and he was, look how my feet don't fit in a footwell. And look at this and look at that. And we're going to fix everything. And, of course, the story I wrote only palely um, um, uh, talked about this stuff because we all understood why I was there. And, uh, and uh, we, I've had a really good relationship with him ever since. We, he's, he's done wonders for the, for the company. He, one of the things that he did, which I'll always uh, admire, is that he shifted the, the manufacturing from Newport Pagnell to Gaydon, where it is now. And had people like me, you know, so-called traditionalists, known that this collection of chicken sheds in Newport Pagnell was going to be dismantled, we would have we gone on about um, all the, um, how shocking it was that, uh, that this heritage was being blown. As it was, we, it was all done without us, and we were, one day we were just shown this wonderful new factory, and of course it was the right thing to do, and, and what they now have is a, is a fantastic factory, and it's well capable of making uh, six, seven, eight thousand cars, and as you've probably heard, Andy Palmer, the latest bloke, another really excellent ex-Nissan guy, Wants to, wants to send it into the 15s. Aston Martin is bound for good things and it's got a hell of a lot to do with Ulrich Betts. Um, Richard Noble, another hero. I don't, I don't know how many of you heard him speak, but he's a wonderful speaker. He's absolutely bloody mesmerizing. You cannot, you, 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 I just wish, if I could come back, um, you know, uh, with an enhanced ability to talk, I would, I would just adopt Richard Noble. It, He's, how that man managed not to be rich in his first three uh, um, land speed record of uh, attempts beats me. You, you'll remember he, he did Thrust 2, which he drove himself, the Thrust SSC, which was driven by Andy Green. Then they did the JCB Diesel Max, and now they're 
in full swing with Bloodhound. Bloodhound is the first properly uh, financed one of these, and it's going to be amazing. It's a little bit behind time, but I think this year, uh, very soon, they're about to start running it on, on a local, on a British runway, and there is still a plan to take it to South Africa before the end of the year. But honestly, amazing bloke. They, you know, people, there are people who, who feel that he, you know, he's shade flaky and all the rest of it, but, and he's had some business ups and downs in his background, but honestly, for a, for a, a, a bloke with, with you know, self-starter guts and determination, you just can't find a better bloke than Richard Noble. This is a stunt that we pulled. When the Lotus Carlton came out, he was the fastest man in the world at the time, and all sorts of claims were made for the, Lotus, for the 200 mile an hour Lotus Carlton. So we blagged one from Lotus and got him to drive it down a, the longest runway we could find, and it got up to about, I think, 175 or something. It was a li little bit of a disappointment, but typically he made it work. You know, he's, he's, he's such a nice guy. He lives about half a mile from our office, which helps. Um, here he is again. Um, this guy, this is, we're getting towards the end of this, I hope you're not bored. Um, this guy's a friend of mine, Simon Saunders. What he's done, he makes aerial uh, cars. So he makes the, the Ace motorcycle, the Atom car, and the Nomad, the recently produced Nomad. But what, what's so remarkable about him is that it's almost impossible these days to launch a car company. Many people have tried, you will have read about it if you read motoring magazines. What happens is that a really nice effort comes over the horizon. It gets beaten up by the likes of us, you know. Um, and then you hear nothing else after, you know, so it, it, it stutters on for a year or two and then it dies. Simon Saunders did everything. He, he, he found a mark. He found a design. He found a way to put it into production. He found a way to control the used car market. He found a way to have a design which bring, continually brings owners back to have brake upgrades or aerodynamic bits or, and so on. He has a thriving business. He's now a millionaire. He can't build enough of these cars. He doesn't want to build many cars. I think about 100 a year of each is plenty. But what he has is a, is a well-judged, thriving business which he runs out of his own head. He has two sons who work in the business. But basically, it's, a, it's, a, it's one bloke's brainchild, and that is in this day and age is amazingly difficult. Some of you will be involved in industry and you'll know perfectly well that in industry, in the, people talk about when, when a product is derived, it looks nice, but moving it to production is an enormous enterprise and there is a thing called the valley of death, <coughs> which, is, which is the point where you don't have enough money and you don't have a market and and you know your suppliers are all over you and all the rest of it. And, and the fact of the matter is, Simon Saunders has, has kind of leapt the valley of death as though it was two feet across. He's, he's a really remarkable bloke, and he's a nice guy. And he lends you a car whenever you want. That's the best. <laughs> um, Claire Williams, what a great person. She, um, she, the thing that amazed me about her, I went to meet her not so long ago, and we walked in the door. I didn't really know what to make of her. I, was he just a figurehead? Um, you know, who, who... But we, we pitched up to the, to the counter in, in the foyer and waited for a receptionist to come out. And Frank appeared behind us. And I thought, you know, I had thought that people go on about how Frank is the 
old living person with his afflictions. I'd interviewed him before, so we sort of knew one another. And he, but he's got these piercing eyes, and he's extremely bright. And you, you, from hearing him uh, um, interviewed, you will know that he's right on the button. And he said, who have you come to see? And we said, well, we're here to interview Claire Williams. And he said, are you being attended to? And we said, yes, there's somebody that's just gone after you. And he said, good. And he said, have a nice day at Williams. And he turned on, or he was with this kind of phantom bloke that wheels him around. And in two seconds, they were in the lift and gone. But, but Frank is still the figurehead, absolutely is the figurehead. But the thing that was fantastic was, was the behavior of Claire, who uh, travels, I mean, she, she is assisted by a bloke called Mike O'Driscoll, who used to run Jaguar in America. And he's very helpful to her, but she is in charge. And she, she is the reason they're doing so much better than they did. She's the reason that, that uh, um, I've forgotten his name, the technical blokey, Pat Simmons. Yeah, so she's the reason Pat Simmons went there. Pat Simmons, as you'll remember, got into a bit of strife with Renault a few years ago. But, but she was the one who saw the sense in hiring Pat, who's a remarkable guy, you know, one of the most experienced, one of the best. And he says, um, the, I'm hopping about all over the place, but Pat says that they are on course to do what they want. He feels they're slightly ahead of their progress curve and they will make it. So Williams are going to be worth watching. Claire Williams, the thing that was remarkable about her, I think I've got a quote here somewhere. She, um, Frank, she was 10 years old when Frank had his accident. And I've interviewed Frank a few times about his accident. I've tried to get him to talk about it and you know, how it might or might not have held him back in his career. And all he will say is, I'm very fortunate. And he feels that, that he's, he's, he's in a business that, allows, that, that is his hobby and his consuming passion. It makes enough money for him to have the finest treatment he could have. He's, he's engaged every day. And, uh, Hence, I'm very fortunate, but it's a wonderful thing to say for a bloke like that. I mean, imagine how he could go. Um, that's right. Claire Williams describes her upbringing, even after Frank's accident, as magic. She, she talks about the, the family atmosphere and just how she was nurtured by these people. And it, I find it remarkable that, uh, that she was able to... Uh, come out as, as such a rounded person. And you know she's doing a good job, and she deserves to, to succeed. Um, at this point, that's, that's, that's a sort of rattle through my heroes. Um, if you want me to, I, I, I'm not sure. I'll, um, I've got, there are things, there are questions that people like me are often asked. And I thought I would just rattle through them. You know, best driver, favorite car, best reader's letter, dafter stunt, that sort of thing. Do you want me to just do a quick? Yeah. <coughs> Sorry about the throat. Best driver, Colin McRae. Colin McRae, I don't approve of what he did and how he demised himself, but I was able to, to travel, to drive with him in a focus in Winlatter Forest, just near Cockermouth, where the cars were built years ago. I actually, it's interesting because I, I was doing it for a story. But I arranged, because he, you know, journalists are born blaggers, I arranged also for my son, then 18, now 34, to, to or you know, he might have been a bit older, 20, say, um, 
to, to also have a go in this car with Colin McRae. And I remember sitting in this car, I've driven with a few rally drivers before, but I'd never experienced the speed or the precision or the effortlessness of, of, his, of his drive. And all you can do, particularly on the, at, at low speed, you can sort of understand what's going on. But at high speed, all you can do is sit there watching this. There's a big readout, or there was in the focus, um, which tells you the speed. And there's all these you know, trees going past on either side. And I remember seeing 185 on this thing, 185 kilometers an hour, which is you know, 115 or something, pretty fast through a forest. And, um, and I just remember thinking, well, I, I, he doesn't want to die. You know, I, so, <laughs> so I'll be all right. And, and, and I just remember, a, I remember, the thing I remember best were the long corners and how he would, how he would just set the car up and sustain it, and, and, and the car would slide and slide and slide, and then we would come out inch perfect at the end of it. And I, at the, there was another point where we went through a gateway, and the car arrived at the gateway all over the place, and he just flicked it straight through the gateway and, and sort of went the other way. But it was just this, the, the, the moment that it was straight was the moment we went through the gate. It was fantastic, honestly. And when I got out, I said, how quick was that? And he said, oh, full speed. And I said, well, you know, aren't you scared of killing people? And he said, it's actually safer, on those, particularly on those big long bends, because if you go a bit slower and it stops sliding halfway through a, a, a fast bend and you, you know, you're still doing 85 miles an hour, you, you, know, you can spear the other way and into the woods. So he said, I was looking after you. <laughs> um, he, uh, Jonathan, my son, got in, did the same thing. He'd been sitting in the car all the way up the M6, I think it was, saying, wouldn't mind having a go at this rally driving. You know, he, he, I think he was contemplating university or some, might have been in his layabout phase, I've forgotten. But he, but he was saying, I reckon I could, you know, give this a go. He had a go with Colin and we got out and he did not speak for 15 minutes. <laughs> and it, and it, if you, if you want to know how good these people are, you just need to travel with them. The other person that had a go at the same time was, was the boss of Ford, the world boss of Ford, an Aussie guy I knew called Jack Nasser, who had to be assisted out of the car because it was, <laughs> because it was, so, it was so extraordinary. I'll never forget it. Um, Favourite car, Elise S1. Now, I think I explained why, because of the... Um, let me move on here. There's a lovely picture of Frank. There's Colin. Sorry, I keep forgetting to press the button. This is the, I think that, that was a tarmac thing. It was a beautiful car, the Focus. Just even looked good, but it went like a blur. This is my Elise S1, just bought it from my best friend, Paul Matty, who was seventh Lotus I bought from him. Um, the reason I bought it, as I was explaining, is because I've lived my life with the Lotus Elise, and, and uh, you know, I wrote all the beat up stories beforehand. I went to the launch. I, you know, I, I, um, I knew the designer, I did the comparison tests, I um, remember it going out of production and the new model coming along and not liking the new model nearly as much. So I thought, I've already owned one, but I thought I would get another one. And this one is on the right tyres, with the right brakes, and so on, sports exhaust. It's nothing special, but I like it. This is my, another of my favourite cars, the Countach LP400. I must have driven about six or seven of these. Um, you'll remember that the Lamborghini, the, as a Lamborghini Countach got, got uh, old, moved through its life, it acquired wings and 
um, body kits and all kinds of horrible stuff. But I think that that original car, the LP400, in that colour um, is magnificent. And I also think that the rear wheel arch, I've said this a few times, but the rear wheel arch is one of the most remarkable pieces of sculpture I've ever seen. It, it doesn't have to be like that, but it looks damn good. And, and, you know, I couldn't imagine what part of a person's imagination puts it there, but I'm glad they did. Um, uh, this is, a, this is a, just a bit of flim-flam. When I was at Car Magazine, one of the things we particularly enjoyed was the quality of the reader's letters, which were, you know, people, which was a monthly magazine, people used to write um, with care, and we used to edit them, the magazine, you know, we used to make a careful choice of what we would run. And this, some bloke wrote to us one time, big long letter, but the, but the nub of, the, of what he wrote was in the PS at the end. And it just, Renault Build a Better Car was a campaign you probably remember from the, tough, you know, McGann era, so, no, pre this, Renault 18 era. This bloke wrote in, Dear Sir, if Renault Build a Better Car, why don't they put it on the market? Yours sincerely. <laughs> <laughs> and I was... We always thought that that was quite a, quite a succinct use of words. <laughs> um, ah, this, is a, this is a bit of a bad, bad business out of my... Uh, I'll just show you the picture beforehand. This car, which was known as Escargo, became known as Escargo Flambe and became quite famous, was... I had a friend who was very good at... at uh, he was involved in turbocharging cars and we decided, in our wisdom, to put a turbocharger on this B-plate 2CV. <laughs> and as you can see, it eventually got to the point where it would wind the speedo needle off the clock. And we took it to Millbrook one time, to the test track one time, and discovered that, that it would do an honest 89 miles an hour, which, when you did it on the N4, clamped to the tailgate of some bloke in a Volvo estate, made the bloke very, very angry. <laughs> And because he would have to do 100 to get rid of you, you know. Because if, if you think 100 on his speedo is actually 95 and, you know, anyway, they, they used to get really cheesed off with you. And the, the other per people that were nonplussed were other 2CV owners who would be doing 54 miles an hour up, the, up some motorway um, gradient in, in a standard car and you would go, wah, and they would, <laughs> and they would sort of wonder what happened. But sadly, on the way back from Millbrook, it caught fire. Uh, oop, hang on, sorry. And uh, burned to the ground. And that, and that, not quite to the ground, that is a photograph that we took on the approach to what was known at the time as Scratchwood Services, London Gateway Services. And that's where it conked, and, and our photographer, Ever Enterprising, took that photograph, reduced speed now. And it's become famous. The car was rebuilt as a Turbo 2, and we, put, we painted a black armband, what we call the black armband, on, the, on, the, on one of the front uh, mudguards. And it disappeared into a bloke's garage. And I was at Prescott two or three weeks ago, and, and the guy came up to me and said, guess what? We found Escargo Flambe. And so it lives. And uh, it's gone off to a 2CV specialist in Somerset. And it, it's uh, not, I'm not sure what will happen, but though I see there was a 2CV event this year, or there is a 2CV event this year at, at uh, um, you know, the motoring festival in next weekend, and, you know, maybe next year we could bring it back. Um, 
Yeah, there you go. And I can't remember. Oh, the, this is about um, sort of crazy things that happened. We discovered that these cars, if you put them in reverse on full lock and, and drove them hard enough backwards, they roll. And so would the... There was also another car called the Atos. Do you remember the Daihatsu? And it became a, a big issue. And we, and we, you know, it was adopted by the press and there was a lot of shouting about it. But, but and, and you'll notice that there aren't that many Mat Matizes around or Atoses around anymore. And it is because they, they were kind of quietly taken away by the, by the maker. Um, this is a car that I currently drive. It's called the, the, the Suzuki Celerio. And it's a... Uh, um, I'm not quite sure how it managed to get that graunch on the front there. <laughs> but um, um, that car, we set out to road test a few weeks ago, and we always do crash stops, and we found that the, the brakes failed. And then we tried it in another one, and the pedal went straight to the floor. And, and what we discovered is that there's a, a mechanism that, in a, in a frontal crash, folds the, the pedals away to, so as not to attack your ankles. But unfortunately, it was a bit overzealous. And, and, uh, <laughs> So they took it back, and the, the car was, luckily, none had been delivered to, into, to customers, the wider uh, customer. And um, so the car's fixed now. I, I drive one quite often, and I really like it. It's a, for a one-litre triple, it's amazing. Um, this is another event. We could, have, we could have done a lot of harm to the DB7. We were, in the very early days of that car, we took it to Millbrook Test Track. Uh, and we were doing 150 miles an hour around the bowl. You'll know there's a two-mile bowl, and if you at about 150, there's a hands-off speed, and it caught fire. And we we were able to put it out because the car had a, uh, a fire extinguisher. It caught fire at the rear, and it was only really caused by a clearance problem. You can imagine the heat build-up of a car that's doing 150 sustained 150 miles an hour. But we always think, what would have happened if, the, if we'd been the Daily Mail? You know, they would have scuppered that car. And all it, it was just a matter of clearance. And all we did was put the fire out, take it back to the workshop, move the, move the exhaust pipe away a bit, and drive on. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a message to people in our racket, you know, not to, not to overreact. Um, there it is, another one. Oh, yeah, but greatest drive ever. I'm sitting in my office just shuffling paper like we always do. The phone rings and it's Alan Wynne. And he said, we thought we'd let a few hacks have a go in the mm -hmm. Napier Railton. And I thought, who are they, you know? <laughs> and, and I was one. There were a couple, the guy from the Daily Telegraph and an excellent friend of mine called Andrew uh, um, um, English. No, not English. Well, English did have a go, but also Andrew Frankel. That's right. Um, and... I've got a particular relationship with this car because I came over here on holiday in 1977, I think it was, came here, and a bloke called Dudley Gagan was driving this car around the banking. And I remember in, in our racket, you can see, you can drive pretty much whatever you want within reason. I just remember seeing this car go and thinking, that's one step too far for you, fella. And it, it was for about 20 years. And then on, the, on came Alan and, and I drove it. And it was, it was extraordinary and, and also um, easy. The, it's, it's easy. It's a, it's, sorry about that. It, it, um, it's, a, it's a perfect car for the fat bastard because you can, you can, 
you know, the, all the drive goes up the middle, you know, you're required to sit there like, you know, a bloke on a throne. Um, the gear change is surprisingly light, the steering's surprisingly light once you get going, but the big problem, those of you, some of you will know about this, is that you, it's got a three-speed box, and idle is a thousand, and max revs is two and a bit, and so there are plenty of speeds that this car just won't do. You, you, you let the clutch in at idle, and it's already doing 35 miles an hour, and if somebody says, do 25, you can't. And, and obviously, in our job, you'll know that, I mean, this photograph was taken out of a camera car, which, you know, with a photographer hanging out of it, just like every photograph you ever see like that. And we tried to do the same with the, well, I mean, that will have been the same. And, and there's always somebody saying, faster, faster, and of course, you can't deliver. So you stick it in second, and it does 60, and they want you to slow down, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> and you bung it in. In, in, uh, um, in top and you know, you're suddenly doing 75, you can't, it's an extraordinary experience. But uh, anyway, amazing car, but the, the thing you're left with is, I, I, the, the noise never leaves your head, because it's nothing like, any, it's like nothing else. But the other thing is uh, just, the, just the sort of honor of being able to sit where John Cobb did. Um, uh, oh, right, yeah, more nonsense, yep. There it is, look at that. Um, this was, I was going to, one of the things we are often asked is, what was the most surprising car you ever drove? Audi Quattro, extraordinary car. Before I tried that car, I just presumed I knew what traction was like in cars. But when the first Quattros came along, the, 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 the top ones, a short Quattro, sort of not really relevant, we've got a better picture here. Um, you could just park two wheels on the verge, park two wheels on the, on the bitumen, rev it up to whatever you like, drop the clutch, and it would just drive away. And of course, those of us used to Fords and Vauxhalls, you know, would have, would have been involved in a sustained, you know, sort of out of control moment for a good long time. And it, it's, it is, it, it really changed the, the whole game, the Quattro. Um, just, um, I, I can't quite remember why the hell we put that there. <laughs> it, it was, it's, uh, it's a Prius, as you know. I, I think perhaps because we, um, we were talking about, you know, the, how cars are going to go and what life's going to be like. I actually, I respect and like the Prius. It's even nice to drive. And those of you, if you haven't had a go in some sort of electric car, something like a Zoe or a, or a, or a Leaf, don't dismiss them before you try, because they, they do have an extraordinary poise and uh, uh, refinement about them. And, and the, the, I've been riding them around for the last six months on a BMW electric scooter, which is a funny machine. It's about the size of a 600 scooter, big. <coughs> and it, it's got a, there's so much torque at zero that, that they have to put a, a, a torque limiter on it for the first 10 Ks. After which it goes like a bloody guided missile, and and you can just for the, the for the way it responds. I mean, you can give some pretty high-priced people a bit of a shock with your electric scooter until you get up to about seventy, and then it's done for. But electric cars are not, and then they're not a joke. They're they're going somewhere. Um, uh, the, I, the reason the, the reason I put this in is the only decent photograph I could find of Dennis Jenkinson at a short notice. The, the story of Moss and Jenks, you'll know about 1955 and all that. But the, 
what I, the reason I put that in is because I was trying to make a point about the way life has changed in our business. There's a, what I was looking for in the archive was a picture of Jenkinson which, where he's sitting by a French mile post leaning against the, the side of his Porsche 356 writing his French Grand Prix report in longhand, having watched the race, interviewed everybody. And when he's written this four or five, 6,000 words, he's going to fold it up, put it in an envelope, find a post box, put it in, and the French postal system is at some stage going to get this single copy back to the office in London. They're going to open it. Some typesetter is going to go through and turn it into, into lead. Then it's going to be printed, and six weeks later, we will see it. And now, you know, life is just not like that. I was talking to Steve about, uh, earlier about F1 reports. If you go into the press room at an F1 race, the people who, who uh, Mark Hughes, you know, the excellent autosport and, and, sorry, motorsport writer, Times writer, will have, by the time somebody crosses the line, he will have four-fifths of his, his story already written. He'll... he'll type like fury to finish it inside another 10, 15 minutes. He'll send it electronically and he'll hope that he's beaten the other blokes in all the other desks because he hasn't been able to leave the press room. All he can do is watch the monitors. But if you can beat your rivals by 10 minutes in this business now, that is a big win. And if you can beat them by a day, that's an amazing achievement. So the, the thought of old Jenks, uh, you know, posting his solitary copy, you know, having having had a sort of leisurely night's sleep after the race and sitting on a nice grass verge is, is just another time. It really is another time. Um, I thought I would... One of the things that's really, really changed about um, uh, the, the... I'll finish in a minute, honestly. <laughs> um, uh, in, in our racket is sexism in advertising, and I've got a prime collection of sexist advertising, and I just thought... <laughs> I would, I would rattle through it. Some of them give me a great deal of pleasure. That one isn't bad. Um, that's pretty good, although I've never known whether they're talking about whether your mother wouldn't like the body roll or the car. <laughs> I think it might be the body roll, because <laughs> it looks pretty damn extreme, doesn't it? Um, this one is a bit of a goodie. Oh, that's supposed to be, you don't have to have a big one to be happy. <laughs> um, and it was, you know, it was, there it was in the press. This one is a Pirelli ad. I think it's one of the most staggering ones that I've ever seen. <laughs> and I particularly like the payoff at the bottom, which says, if they can keep the Italians out of trouble, think what they can do for you. <laughs> it's, uh, it's just so impossible to imagine that being used now. And that, of course, is, you know, the old, uh, you know... <laughs> Now that was, this is quite a sort of harmless one featuring Graham Hill sitting in some completely inappropriate car. But it's, it's just weird how life's changed, isn't it? Now this, is, this bloke is my absolute hero of, of modern times. One of the things that, the thing that has changed most, most about the industry that I know is the way it's managed. This bloke, Ralph Speth, runs JLR. He... Uh, does it in a most, I mean, he's a very, he's a, has a hell of a lot of authority and he does, you know, he's, I think he's a pretty tough customer. But he runs it in a collegiate way. He has, if you say to him, why did you decide this set or the other thing? He'll say, because, because that's what we decided. He listens to people. I had an argument with him one time years ago 
because a boy that I knew had, had made an attempt to get a job at JLR and had been badly treated by the HR people. And I said to Ralph, your HR people are crap. And he said, are they? And, and, and the procedures were changed. It, it, he, he investigated the problem. It wasn't because of me. He just investigated the problem, established for, you know, to his own satisfaction that it was wrong, and he changed it. And you'll be aware that JLR is one of the biggest recruiter of, recruiters of young people in the country and will be for a long time. He's a remarkable guy. Um, that, I think, is it. That is me run out of... Oh, God, you don't want that again. <laughs> so um, with that... Ladies and gentlemen, I, I probably said as much as you probably want to hear from me. Do you, do you want, do you, should we? Uh... We could listen to you all evening. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's some questions, ladies and gentlemen. Anybody has a question, great. But uh, I've kind of asked my own in a way. Yeah. So what was the Lamborghini like to drive? You obviously like the look of it. What was it like to drive? <laughs> uh, annoyingly, the LP400 was the worst of them. <laughs> and, and as they got... Because, it, because of the way it was made, it was, if, if you ever went there, you, you just saw these, these artisans welding these little tubes together and in a, in, you know, it was all brazed and stuff, and it, and it couldn't possibly be aligned. It, you, know, you couldn't believe the wheels would point in the right direction when it was... But they just got better at it, and, and the engines got more powerful. And when they got up to... There's a, the, the last car, I think, was called the Quattro Valvola, and, and I think it had 455 horsepower. And I remember driving one around Castle Coombe, most powerful car I'd driven at the time, and I remember thinking, this could just do with a little bit more poke. And it was, it was a good handling car, because the wheelbase was fairly short, overhangs were short. The, or the mass, do you remember the, the engine drove forward and then back? And so the mass was centered in the middle of the car, and it didn't, it just went where you pointed it in the end. When, when people worked out, uh, you know, how to get the alignment right and the correct tires and all that. But, Annoyingly, the LP400 was the worst. Any others? Yeah? Yeah, Gordon Murray, is he about to make millions or is he about to disappear into obscurity? I think he's already made millions. Well, billions then. <laughs> um, he... Uh, it's an enigma, isn't it? The, uh, we, we, we... I mean, I'm the chief beater-up-in-chief beater of Gordon Murray's stories. You know, we, we've written lots of bullish stuff about him. And he, and he has finally had a bit of a hit with this, the new TVR people who have adopted his iStream production methods for their new car. And they are serious people who are proper fun, properly funded and all the rest of it. They're going to use a Cosworth V8. So I think he's going to do okay. But, but he does a lot of stuff below the line that we, below the radar, that you and I don't really know about. Consultancy work. And he... I think he's quite well off. I mean, I see the way he lives, and it's not bad. So he's just playing, do you think? Is he? Just playing. No, no, he's, he's a, he just loves engineering, and he's doing lots of engineering work for, for people and consultancy jobs, but he doesn't... A lot of them are things that he can't talk about. There's a, engineering consultants always have far more secrets than they can ever reveal, and he's, he's one of those. But I think... It has, there has been a delay in, in him producing something that, that can be identified with him, but I think the, the wait may be over in the next year or two anyway. He did have that, um, do you remember he had that project with Yamaha? And I think that proceeds. That still uh, it's still going, still yeah. Going. yeah. But there, you can imagine how slow they are to deal with. Yeah. Two questions. The first one, have you interviewed Bernie? 
Uh, no, no, I haven't. I wish I had. Any he, particular reason why? I'm scared of the bloke, but also it's, <laughs> <laughs> but also it's, it is, it's difficult to get, to get a, I've tried it, but it's difficult to get on stream with him because he, they sort of want to know why, what your angle is. And, and Autocar is such a generalist magazine that it's, it sort of doesn't, it's not a good enough answer to say just to find out what sort of bloke you are. Um, so we, we've never managed it. Um, but I would love to give it a go. I think he, I hope he's not listening, but, I, but I, I do have a feeling that he's kind of past it now. And, I, and I, I'm, I'm thinking that the, the reason they can't sort themselves out at the moment is because Bernie's not got the grip that he used to have. And I, I don't know how I would treat that if I thought it in an interview, you know, whether I'd go on feeling healthy. Second question. I mean, when eventually, you know, if you decide to retire, what are you going to do? Me? Yeah. I won't retire. I mean, you, the great thing about us... <laughs> the great thing about it in, in our job is that you as, long as you, as long as your head works and your fingers move, you can, you can, you can keep going. I, I haven't got... Um, I love the job. I love the job. You know, I, I was whinging earlier on about the things I've got to do I have to go home to Gloucestershire tonight, pick up my old lady, go to Le Mans tomorrow, be at an event to, to um, uh, be at an, I have to witness a, a, an Alpine being driven around a circuit. I have to interview a bloke from Ford. Then under the race will start on Sunday morning. I have to be back because I have to take Angela where she needs to go because I have to go be at, in Spain on, Sunday, on Monday morning. And... Well, well, it's it's it sounds like a lot of boasting, but the thing is, the thing is, when you actually do it, it does knock you around, and um, and so I I I do have to manage that a bit, but uh, no, I'm not complaining. No. There was a gentleman up the back. It's an interest, really interesting story. Nobody knows. But the, the, we, I work for Haymarket, which has six motoring magazines. We make a little bit more money from uh, electronic media now than we do from printed pages. But the, the way it's working is that the, 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 the print, all print is declining either fast or slowly. Ours, luckily, slowly. If you have a, if you have a, a kind of an old brand, people continue to support it. And, and, um, Autocar has almost stopped declining. I mean, it's not as healthy as it was, but it, it doesn't seem to be... We can't see a, a reason for stopping printing that, not for years. But the, 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 the story is that while print is declining, it's still more profitable per unit of effort than the websites, which are rocketing. You know, we, we have... Autocar has a much bigger audience than it ever did in any at any time in its 120-year career. It's the oldest motoring magazine in existence. I don't know if you're aware of that. But it, it, it has, you know, huge volumes of people in America, in India, in Australia, you know, obviously in this country. But the, but the amount of money that you get back for, all the, for the effort expended is smaller in, in the electronic media. And what all our, all our kind of bean counters are doing is sitting around trying to manage that. Because you can't really invest in that because it's not too much because it's not going anywhere, but you don't want to kill it because it's still profitable. <laughs>
So it's a problem. Any more for any more observation? Actually, my father worked on auto car when he's what was it Eilif? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and they, they used it in motorcycle, nursing, mirror, yachting, weld. Yeah. An auto guard seems to have survived, and he used to bring them home either a week or a week later. The proof, and like you, it was about that high. <laughs> Home then, so the gentleman behind said that electronic taking over yeah, is an interesting observation. Yeah. Again, when you said your Jenks word was converted into lead, yeah. your father was a compositor, and that was was he? Was he? Yeah. yeah, I remember I worked with those people, they were, they were amazing. Press. Yeah, yeah. Ah, yeah. really? Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Certainly, it was Yeah. Yeah, Eilif, uh, Eilif's were the people who launched this thing. Autocar's interesting because it was. It was spun off a bicycle magazine, very successful Victorian bicycle magazine. And the editor, a bloke called Henry Sturmey, Sturmey Archer, um, you know, one day noticed these contraptions going around and thought, we should do a bit on those. And they never stopped. And the rest is history. And the rest is history. Steve Crockley.